Today we are going to be continuing our series called Family Ties as we have been talking about God's plan for the family and, and last week we had a great time. Wasn't it a great Mother's Day? Did, did y'all have a great time? Did you have a great Mother's Day? All right, well, that's good. The, the, the yes wasn't quite as emphatic on that last one, so guys, step it up next year. But um, uh, we're doing the series, and it'll go all the way through Father's Day. Uh, uh, this is the plan, anyway. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to be talking about when dads won't lead. Now, this is not the Father's Day message. I'm going to actually give you, uh, I have a word of, that the Lord has laid in my heart that will be very encouraging for the dads. Because here's what we do. We have this tendency on Mother's Day, we talk about how wonderful mothers are and lift them up, and rightfully so, and then it comes to Father's Day and we just unload on them, and, and we're, we want to be encouraging on Father's Day, but today, this is going to be a little bit more of a challenge for, uh, not just for dads, it's, it's really the principles here are true for moms and dads, but we understand that biblically, that the father is called to be the, the, the head of the home, the leader, spiritual leader of the home, the priest of the home. And so, Dad, it ultimately falls on us. And so the reality is, though, there are those times when fathering and even parenting in general, general is, a, is an absolute unmitigated joy. You know what I'm talking about. It's just a delight. Uh, but I also believe that there are those times when you have done everything you know to do and you're still faced with that moment of confrontation where one of your children is, is not only living outside of your will, but they're not living in the center of God's will. The question is, how do you handle that then? What do you do in that situation? And I believe that many, many fathers drop the ball at that point by failing to receive the word of God regarding firmness in leadership at the point of a child's sin. I would like to give you a word of encouragement and exhortation along those lines today. In Proverbs 13, there is a verse of Scripture that has been uh, misunderstood and many times misapplied in so many lives. But, but I want us to look at it and see if maybe God would have a fresh word for us from it. Proverbs 13, 24 says this. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, that's a verse that every one of us has heard? How many of you, your parents quoted that at you as they were beating the tar out of you? You know, um, uh, it, It's a verse that has been misapplied and misunderstood, uh, but it's an important verse. Now, now flip over to Proverbs 19. I want you to see this. Proverbs 19, verse 18 says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. In that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. In other words, if you don't discipline your children, you are eliminating hope from their lives and ultimately you will be a party to all of the suffering that they bring upon themselves. So with that said, let's just pause for a moment and let's ask God to help us as we look into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is an open book for us. Lord, we, we, more than that, we want to be an open book before you. God, we don't want to have the wisdom of man. We don't want anything superficial. We don't want anything shallow or, em or emotional. God, uh, that's not all we want. We, we don't want the rote repetition of, of just evangelical cliches. God, we, we need a deep word from you. And God, I pray you'd give us something that's practical and down to earth, yet spiritual. Speak to us, God, deep in our innermost being. We believe you for this. God, only you can do this. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to consider three fathers out of Scripture who failed at the point of discipline. They were fathers who refused to, to take the reins of leadership and to do what was necessary, even though it was painful in terms of ministering to their sons. So turn first to 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is probably one of the most famous or more accurately most infamous passages of Scripture. Um, about a father who failed to rush into the gap and, and do what he knew was right. We're going to read 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 17, then skip to 22 to 25, then 27 through 36. And, and I know you're familiar with this passage, but I want you to have it clear in your mind. So, so let me make sure you have the, the context clear. Eli is the man about whom we're about to read next. Uh, Eli served as the, remember he served as the surrogate father for the prophet Samuel. We're not going to be talking about that today. But he was the high priest 
of Israel, and his two sons were named Phinehas and Hophni. Uh, and we're, we're gonna about to read about them right now. Verse 12. I, 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 listen, if you ever have a, word, a verse of Scripture written about you, this is the one you don't want. Now the sons of e- Eli were worthless men. That's a, that's a terrible introduction right there. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that, that, was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while his meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now let me pause there for a minute uh, to explain so you'll understand what's happening in this passage. What was happening is that when a person of Israel brought a sacrifice to the temple, the priest would, would drop the flesh into the cauldron and would boil it, and, and that was what they were supposed to do. And then they were supposed to skim, as it's boiling, they were supposed to skim the fat off the top of the water, and then they were supposed to burn the fat on the altar as a sacrifice to God. That's what they were supposed to do. But instead what they were doing is they would drop it in, and then they would leave it in there and let the meat finish cooking, And when it was finished, they would reach in with a three-pronged hook and say whatever is left in the pot belongs to God and whatever the hook catches is for the the priest. And so they would pull the boiled meat out for themselves to eat. In, In that way, what they were doing is they would steal a man's sacrifice between the point that it was offered and the point where it was actually consumed on the on the altar. You understand what I'm saying? It's kind of like the old joke. Maybe you've heard about the the black backslidden the backslidden pastor who took the offering plates and and he, and after the offering and threw all the money up in the air and he said, "Okay, whatever stays up in the air is God's, and whatever come down is mine." The problem is, these guys weren't joking. They were actually stealing the offerings of the people that were intended for God. Verse 15, moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, uh, uh, from you but only raw. So not only were they stealing the sacrifice, but they were asking people to give some of the extra flesh of the animal that was not being sacrificed, which they had kept back from the sacrifice, and, and they said, you give, that, give us some of that meat, Because the priest doesn't want to always eat boiled meat. He wants something else that he can roast. And if the man said to him, let let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Now imagine this. Imagine you come to church one Sunday morning and, and we say it's time for the offering. And, 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 and that's a week that you don't have any money to put in the offering. And so you come, the ushers come by with the offering plate and they say, they say to you, put some money in the offering. And you say, well, if, if you'll wait till next week, I'll have some, some offering. Uh, I'll, I got payday this week. I'll have some offering next week if you'll wait. And if they were looking at you and say, no, put it in now or we're going to knock you down and beat it out of you. This is what was happening. Can you imagine that? The high priest's sons, Phineas and Hophni, they've hired thugs to work as their assistants in the temple. So the people come and they're taking more offering than the people are willing to give. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Skip to verse 22. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all, to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance uh, to the tent of meeting. Now, now look at this. Not only are they extorting offerings from the people, not only are they stealing offerings out of the sacrifice, but, but they're also seducing or extorting sexual favors from the women who came to make the sacrifices and to pray at the temple. So now there's sexual immorality in addition to thievery. Verse 23, and he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. So did you hear that? Eli is completely aware of what's going on. He is not confused. He is not deceived. He said, for I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Verse 24, he says, no, my sons, 
It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of the Father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And then verse 27. And there came a man of, of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to, be, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by, by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons, listen to this, and honor your sons above me? This is God speaking to Eli, and God says, you're honoring your sons more than you honor me. He said, by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will... Cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. So in other words, there will be such a curse of violence on the house of Eli that from that generation uh, on, every male in the family is going to die at a young age. Then never reach uh, a mature adulthood. Verse 32, then in distress you will look, look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall be not, not there shall uh, uh, excuse me, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off, cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. And this that shall come upon you, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to him and to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put in me in, in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now, friends, this is a tragic story. And, 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 this, and this horrendous prophecy, this terrible, terrible story in this Horrible prophecy that was given by this unnamed prophet to, to, that came to Eli it all came to pass. And if you'll remember, ju just as this prophecy foretold, the, the war was lost to the Philistines. There were thousands and thousands of Israelite soldiers who were killed. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was captured for the first time ever and taken away by the Philistines. And Phinehas and Hophni were killed. And when Eli heard the news of that, with this prophecy still ringing deep in his heart, he fell backward off of a bench, had a cerebral hemorrhage, and died. His daughter-in-law went into premature labor and died giving birth to her child. And her last gasp of breath was used to name the child Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed Israel. There's no glory left in Israel. Here's what I want you to understand. This whole thing could have been avoided. This whole thing could have been avoided. But Eli, the priest, as it says in Scripture, honored his own sons higher than he honored God. The refusal to rebuke sons who are, or, or daughters who are involved in horrendous evil, even though God may order us to do so, is a deadly poison. Eli, he wanted to pass this ministry that God had given to him on to his sons, and that may well have been God's plan at first, but his son's sins negated that, negated that plan. God spoke to Eli plainly that the ministry was not to be handed on as a dynasty. You know, a while back I heard about a pastor uh, in another state who invited a very, very world-famous evangelist to come and preach in his church, and he was actually amazed that the guy agreed to come. But between the time that he was invited and the time that he arrived to preach, this famous evangelist, and I'm going to say his name, his son got involved in a, in a very disreputable situation 
But the evangelist, the famous man, refused to chasten his son. He refused to deal with the situation publicly. It was swept under the rug, it was covered over, and the ministry went on just as usual. Well, the day came that that man was going to preach, and the pastor went out that weekend to the airport to meet this famous preacher whom he had never met before, never had laid eyes on him in person. And when he met the evangelist and his entourage at the airport, they got into, into his car to head from the airport to the hotel and introductions had been made all around and the pastor started the car and as he backed the car up out of the, out of the parking space, this world famous evangelist turned to him, put his hand on his arm and he said, do you think I'm doing the right thing about my son? He had never met the man before. Yet he asked, do you think I'm doing the right thing about my son? This thing was eating at him so deep down inside that he was looking for affirmation of of his weakness from perfect strangers. May God give us, especially as fathers, the resolve that we will never, ever, ever be found in a place where our sons or our daughters or our wives see that we choose false family loyalty above obedience to the holiness of God. We do ourselves no favor if we do. We do our family no favor if we do. We we do the church no favor if we do. And we may well do damage to the kingdom of God, serious damage, Our children must know, I love you. I love you more than anything in the world. I would throw myself in front of a train for you. I would do anything in this world for you except one thing, not to please you, not to profit you, not to bless you, but not for any reason will I ever deny God or sin against His holiness. That must be perfectly clear. This whole debacle in Israelite history could have been avoided if Eli had said to his sons what they needed to hear. Instead, he gives them a very weak rebuttal. Well, why are you doing this, boys? I'm just hearing terrible things about you. Y'all are just doing awful stuff. Why don't you just quit? Sounds like a silly old woman. He should have called them out in front of the temple. Their sins were public. And so he should have called them out in the front of the temple and said, you're through. You're through with the priesthood. You're adulterers. You're fornicators. You're liars. You're thieves. You're through. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. He should have denied them the priestly office. And it may well have been that more than one thing could have happened had he done the right thing. It may well have been that a revival might have broken out in the nation instead of backsliding that, that took place as a result of the ministry of Phineas and Hophni, because listen, when the clergy of a country fall away from God, then, then the people of that nation will fall away from God. But it might well have been that, that had they been so spurred on to holiness by the example and the leadership of Eli, that they might well have turned to God themselves. Secondly, Eli's own ministry might have known a fresh anointing from God instead of the curse and the judgment that God, from God that he received. And the third thing that might have happened, and this is the most important of all, Eli's sons might have been saved. His sons might have been saved. L- listen to what the book of Proverbs says. We read it. Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Now, now listen to me, parents, for a minute. Now, I'm going to talk to you about what I believe, not what I've experienced. What I'm going to say to you now, I believe to be true based on God's word, but I have never faced this myself. I don't know that that I have the resolve. I I believe that God would help me. I believe that he would give me the resolve. I don't want to ever have, to ever have to face it. I don't ever want to have to deal with it. I don't ever want to have to do this, but I know what's right in my heart. So what I'm telling you now, some, some of you are going to sit there and say, well, that's easy for you to say you haven't faced it, but now I've told you that I haven't faced it, so you can't say that anymore. All right, so I believe, and I've seen it happen over and over, many parents not only neglect to chasten their own children, but they will not allow God to chasten their children. They get between their children and God. 
Now listen to this. God wants to bring our children to a place of brokenness where he can deal with their lives, where he can crack them open personally, individually, and deal with their lives. See, here's the challenge of parenting. I heard this a long time ago, and, and this, is, this has been what I use to try to shape my parenting. Our job as parents is to break the wills of our children without breaking their spirit. See, I, I want their will broken before me. Because I want them to submit to my authority because if they learn to submit to my authority as their dad, then later they will learn to be able to submit to God's authority. Our wills, all of our wills have to be broken before God and he wants to do it. He starts doing it with our children and he uses you as a parent to begin to break the will because the human will is dead set against God. It's, it's, it's empowered by the flesh, not by the spirit. And so he wants to work in your child's life. He's going to, sometimes God has to engineer circumstances, or if that doesn't fit into your theology, at least allow that child of yours to maneuver themselves into a place of, uh, where it's that, onto that hard surface of difficult circumstances, which is going to serve as the anvil. And they get themselves out on the anvil, and then comes the hammer blow of God to break their will. How many of you have ever been under the hammer of God? Where he's chipping away. He's working on your life. He wants to do that in your children. And, and what happens, it's going to, listen, it's going to happen. The hammer blow is going to come. God is going to work on shaping your child. He's going to begin chiseling away those things in your child that he doesn't want there. He's going to try to use you to do it. The hammer blow is going to fall. It's going to happen. But what happens is that parents often do one of two things. Sometimes parents insinuate themselves between their children and God, in which case the hammer, now listen to this, the hammer blow will fall and you will take the blow. You will take the blow. There are parents right now that are being driven apart in their own marriage relationship because they are accepting the hammer blows that God intended not to punish them, but it was intended by God to crack open their children and to bring them to a place of brokenness where they could receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But they've gotten between them and God and they keep paying off the debts. They keep paying off the fines. They keep paying off bail bonds. They keep doing everything they can to keep their children from receiving the hammer blow of God and feeling the consequences of their own action that God can use to say, hey, listen, I'm trying to do something in your life if you'll pay attention. They, 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 they keep the prodigal from getting into the, the, the hog's den, which is the one place where they come to their senses and say, I need to go back to my father they keep doing everything they can to keep their children from receiving the hammer blow of God they keep intercepting the hammer blows that were intended to break the will of their children and now they are in hundreds or sometimes even thousands of dollars of debt and they're in that place because they keep, because they keep on absorbing the blows that were never intended for them the other thing is that that happens sometimes is is this now one thing is to get between the hammer blow and your children, the other thing is the parents do is they remove the anvil and put a pillow in its, face, in its place. Listen, you put a pillow where an anvil ought to be, you can lay a walnut on that pillow, hit it with a hammer, but you're not going to break it. It just drives it down into the pillow. Eli moved a pillow. He allowed his sons to remain in the ministry knowing that they were corrupt priests. If he had obeyed God, those boys would, would, would have been uh, taken out of the uh, out of the their ministry, they would have been moved in onto that hard surface of having to realize that they lost their place of ministry. And and, and it's not because God hated Phineas and Hophni; it's because God loved Phineas and Hophni. They might have been saved. They might have known the sanctifying reality of God. They might have been broken in the presence of God. They might have repented. More than one man has experienced the power of God when he's been on the anvil. I know I have. There have been times when I was stubborn and hard-hearted toward God, and he allowed my circumstances to get worse and worse and allowed me to go where I wanted to go. And then when I got on that place where I was on the anvil and I, and I had no place else to turn, the hammer blow came, and it was in that place that I experienced the power of God that set me free. Eli refused 
and rejected the anvil of God. Furthermore, he accepted the blow of God and it, would, and it wound up punishing not only Phineas and Hophni, but it, it, it punished Eli himself, it punished the rest of his family, and his entire nation suffered. God forbid. It is false loyalty and superficial judgment to shield those we love from the hammer blows that were intended to break them open for God's grace. I have seen it, and I've seen parents that, that, that did it for a while and came to their senses and realized, you know, I'll I, I, I just, not using anybody here, but using past experiences. I've seen children that were, got themselves in trouble over and over again, and, uh, and their, their parents would, would go and they'd bail them out of jail and bail them out of jail and bail them out of jail, and finally it came to the point where one day the dad said, you know what, we're not helping him by doing this, he needs to stay there. That's letting the hammer blow of God fall. Letting the consequences come sometimes, and, and listen, <laughs> this is a lot easier to say than it is to do. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you, how many of you when you see your child suffering, you would be willing to take it on yourself? Isn't that right? Absolutely. But it's a false loyalty. Sometimes, and, and this is the hardest thing of all. Sometimes you have to be absolutely impervious to the tears. Now I'm going to say something to you about God that I believe in my whole heart. I believe it may shock a lot of you in this place. But I believe that God is so determined to do good in us that he is not very much altered in his plan for us by our tears. Now, I'm not talking about when we're hurting. He is moved by, by our tears in that moment. But I'm talking about when we get ourselves in a place where we have been resistant to God and we begin to say, God, I don't want to do this. I don't, I, I don't believe God is moved by the tears in that moment because if he's trying to accomplish something in my life, he's more, important, he's more concerned about my character than he is my comfort. I, I, I learned this about God, a lot about who God is from my parents. I love my parents. My dad has gone to be with the Lord, but, and my parents certainly had their faults. No parents are perfect. But they were, they were like God in at least one way. And that was this. Once my parents spoke it, it was as if the law had been carved into stone. <laughs> Anybody relate with what I'm talking about? I, I mean, once something was said, it was done. Now, here, here's where I want to apply that and show you what I'm talking about. For example, we'd be in church on a Sunday. Or Wednesday, or any other day that the, that the doors were open, because if the doors were open, we were in church. And if I started acting up during service, some of you that grew up in church, you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. My, my mom or my dad, usually it was my mom, uh, would, would lean over and whisper something to me. Or, or she might write it on a piece of paper and hand it to me. Or, or worst of all... <laughs> Some of you can relate with this. Worst of all, my mom would snap her fingers and give me that bone-chilling glare that every mother possesses. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you know the, the, that look that meant one thing and one thing alone? It meant, I am going to spank you when we get home. You are in big trouble. That was the, what the look meant. And they would say something like they'd say, you are going to get it when we get home. Anybody ever heard those words? You're going to get it when we get home. And they did not mean I was going to get ice cream or popcorn. Nothing good involved in this. What it meant was, you know, when we get home, you're going to get a spanking. And when they said it, it was as if it had been carved in Mount Rushmore. You, can you understand this? And on the way home that night, we'd be driving in the car on our way back home after church. And I'd be in the back seat and, and I'd pretend to be asleep, you know, let my body go limp. Sometimes the Lord would be merciful and I actually would fall asleep. And I could feel my dad's big strong arms picking me up and carrying me into the house. And I would just hope against hope that he would just take me into my room and lay me down and have mercy on this poor little child. I would hope against hope that maybe they forgot about the promise. And, and, you know, instead, if I, was, if I was asleep, they would, they would gently shake my, my shoulders and wake me up and say, David, wake up, we're home, we're home. And I'd say, oh, okay, thanks, I'm ready to go to bed. And my parents say, no, not yet. First, you've got to get your spanking. Or, or worse yet, this is the worst. This is the worst. My parents would play dumb 
all the way home, never mention it, just everything is normal. Hey, you know, they're talking about all the good things in life and having a great time, great conversation all the way home. And then we get home and I'd get ready for bed and I'd be ready to go to bed and I'd be thinking, I made it. They actually forgot. And that's when they'd walk in the room and say, you thought we forgot, didn't you? That's cruel. That's cruel and unusual punishment. That's unconstitutional. I, I maintain that. I mean, listen to me. I'm quite sure that, that a tornado could have, have blown through this city, an earthquake could have hit and opened up the ground before us, lightning could have struck our house and burned it to the ground, but my mom and dad somehow or another would have got that spanking in. And I would, listen, I would weep and I would cry and I would groan and I would moan to try to get my parents not to do this thing but they would not be swayed because my parents, they were not heartless. It's that they were so determined that the greater good get done. They were so determined that the greater good get done that they refused to yield to my tears. There is a godly thing in that. Now let me show you why it works. God forbid, but suppose there's a soldier who steps on a landmine and his leg just gets mangled and they, the medics come and they get him and they rush him to the field hospital, take him into the mass unit. They get him in there and, and they say, all right, son, if we're going to save your life, we're going to have to take your leg off. And they say that the only thing is, the problem is that we're completely out of any kind of mor morphine or any other kind of painkiller. We have no anesthesia whatsoever, but we have to take this leg off. So they start to do it the old-timey way. You know what the old-timey way is? They put a, a, a piece of wood in your, in your mouth and say, bite down hard on this. And then they hold him down and begin the amputation. And when that saw begins to bite into his leg, do you know what that soldier is going to scream? He's going to scream, just let me die. Let me die. Get away from me. Me. you're killing me you're killing me you're killing me and he may get tears in his eyes but and and they may stream down his face but if that surgeon really cares for that boy he'll saw on if that surgeon loves him he will run the risk of his hatred rather than abandon him to his own bad judgment because people who are hurting and in pain are the least capable people of good judgment Sometimes there's no substitute for the hammer and the anvil. And if you, dad, if you give in to tears, now it probably works a lot better for our daughters to try the tears on us. Uh, that usually works better. But if you give in to the tears, oh, daddy, 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 just, just pay it off one more time, please. I, I promise it'll never happen again. Bail me out one more time. Listen, sometimes you have to say no. I love you more than anything in the world. In fact, I love you so much that the answer is no. And I believe this with my whole heart. If Eli had stood fast, his boys might have been saved, his nation might have been saved, and his ministry might have been saved. As it was, he honored his sons above God, which is false loyalty, and he lost all three. I want to move to the second one. We'll, the next two will go a little quicker. Some of you are like, good Lord, we're going to be here till Tuesday. But the second one is it's about King David, 2 Samuel 13. Let me just give you the context. David, of course, uh, because he had multiple wives, had sons and daughters that were half-brothers and half-sisters to each other. One of his sons was Amnon, who lusted for his half-sister Tamar. Tamar was the full sister of another of David's sons, Absalom. So you have Absalom and Amnon, who are half-brothers, and you have Absalom and Tamar, who are full brother and sister. And, and Amnon, he pretends like he's really sick. He, he, he wants Tamar. He is lusting after her. And he pretends that he's sick. And he, and he summons his half-sister Tamar in to nurse him. He pretends that he's so sick that he can't even eat. And he says that the only thing that could possibly make him better would be if his beautiful half-sister would come and put the food into his mouth personally. And David orders the girl to go and do that. And while she's there, Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. And that's where we pick up the story, 2 Samuel 13, 21. When David heard all this, he was furious. By the way, what you read there is David's full response. He was just angry. 
And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister uh, Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has, some, has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come, come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he, went with him, uh, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down and then kill him, don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. What a horrible, horrible picture of a family in disintegration. Confusion, lust, anger, revenge murder, and incestuous rape. And in the middle of all this, really the core of all of these other events is David. This falls at David's door. Now listen, I love David. We just did a study on David. And I admire him. I really believe he was a man after God's own heart. He was a great general. He was a mighty king. He was, he was a, a poet warrior. He was a magnificent musician. He was a, 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 an, an unmatched politician. He was, a great, he was all these things. But David was also a rotten dad. Because David abdicated his position of leadership and refused to execute righteous judgment between his sons, he received the reward, which was revenge and murder. Dads, listen to me. Do what's right. Do what's right. Don't, don't play favorites. Now, I don't understand the situation here. I don't know all that was in it, but I, I believe that I understand one thing. Why didn't David punish Amnon? Because listen, if there had been any other family in all of Israel that came to David as the king and said, we want to, you know, we, we have this, this half-brother has raped his, his half-sister and we want to press charges against him for the, uh, and, they, and they asked the king for judgment, David would have punished him and according to the law of Moses would have stoned him to death. That was, that was what was coming. But David refused to punish Amnon. Why? Now, I don't know all the reasons. But I believe I know this, at least in part, deep in David's heart, it must have been that Amnon was more important to him than Tamar. God forbid. Dads, especially those who have sons and daughters, if you play favorites with your sons, you will reap a reward of havoc in your daughter's lives. I heard a preacher tell a story about a time he was preaching at a college some years ago. He gave an invitation and one young girl came to the altar and the, the wife of the president of the college came and knelt beside the girl and they prayed for a long time. The girl was just almost hysterical in her weeping and finally the college president's wife came to the preacher and said, I'm not making any headway with this girl at all. Would you please come and pray with us? And he knelt down beside that girl and began to, he put his hand on her shoulder, began to pray. And as he began to pray, he saw something very clearly in his mind. And I don't know what you want to call it. I don't know if you want to say it was a word of knowledge or a vision or whatever it was, but he saw a scene in his mind that was so clear and so unbidden that he, he felt that it had to be from God. And he shared it with the girl. He said, he said, young lady, before I say one more word to you, I want to tell you what I'm seeing in my mind as I kneel here with you to pray. He said, I see a young girl of about 10 or 11 years of age. She's wearing uh, tennis shoes and white socks and a pair of blue shorts and a t-shirt. And she's on a sun-baked ball field, an empty ball field. And she's standing there between second and third base. And I can see a man at home plate, and he's hitting balls out to her at shortstop. And he, he said, I can hear the man yelling, keep your head down. Cock your arm when you throw. You're throwing like a girl. That girl hurled, heard that, and she curled her little fist up against her chest and put her head back and howled. And she said, I hate you. I hate you. She said, I am a girl. And she fell into the arms of the wife of the college president and said, 
I'm a practicing lesbian and I need deliverance. She said, I want to be a girl. I can't be daddy's boy anymore. Oh, dear God, dads, can't our little girls know that we love them and that we're going to execute judgment for them? Can't our children know that none of our children are favored over the others? Every child we've got ought to be our favorite. I told my girls the other day, I said, listen, whenever I'm with you alone, I'll be telling you, you're my favorite. But just know when I'm with the other one alone, when I'm, I'll tell them they're my favorite too. I think it's a wonderful thing. When I was growing up, we all thought we were mom's favorite. I still, you know, convinced I am. Um, my sister wants to argue with me. She's probably right, but that's a different story. Listen, I don't know what damage was done in the life of Tamar. But we do know that it, that, that it tells us that Tamar lived as a widow in her brother's house until she died. Her life was shattered by this experience. And I, I don't know all that happened in Absalom's life, but we... But we do know that the seed of rebellion was planted in him and, and that was to wreak horrible havoc in the life of David and the nation of Israel. We do know that murderous rage and a thirst for revenge was planted in his heart. But David said to himself, I love Amnon so, Amnon so much, I just can't allow him to be punished. If David had been willing to take the reins of leadership and allow Amnon to be punished in some way, then maybe the whole incident, maybe the whole civil war led by Absalom, maybe all of that could have been avoided. But instead, David's inability to act as the priest and leader of his home engendered bitterness and resentment in his children and later caused a nationwide civil war resulting in the death of thousands. Finally ended up with Amnon being murdered, Absalom hang, hanging by his hair in a tree being killed, and Tamar's life being shattered. He said, oh, I can't afford to lose Amnon, and he lost so much more. Let's move to the third one. We'll close with this one. If, if you if turn to the book of Judges, in Judges 14, we see Manoah. Anybody know who Manoah was? Manoah was the father of Samson. Manoah was a good man, a righteous man, a loving man, an obedient man, yielded to God in many, many ways, but, but Manoah was an indulgent father. Judges 14, beginning in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and said, father and mother, uh, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the, the uncircumcised Philistines? Now remember, Samson was dedicated to the Lord from before his birth as a Nazarite. He was not supposed to have a woman at all. Secondly, it's against the law of Israel for him to marry this woman because she's a Philistine, a Gentile of the worst order. And Manoah says, isn't there a single Jewish girl in the whole land that you can marry? You've got to marry this Philistine. But look at what he says. He says, but Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Or she looks good to me is what it means. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, listen to this. God's going to use this incident in the, in the, uh, just as he used other incidences in the, in over and over again in the life of Samson. Uh, the life and ministry of Samson is extremely complicated to study because it's not just A, B, C, D. It's complicated. God uses Samson even in his worst defeats. But uh, even the death of Samson is complicated to understand. But, but here's what I want to say. Samson's entire life and ministry can be summarized not so much in terms of what he accomplished, but in terms of what he might have accomplished if he had lived up to the commands of God. When we think of Samson, we do think of some of the great things he did, but, but there can't, we cannot help but look at his life and begin to think, if only he had really been uh, surrendered to God, what could he have done? What entangled, listen, He's a classic case of a might-have-been who never reached his full potential in the kingdom because he couldn't get control of his appetites. 
And what entangled Samson over and over again was his appetite for women. And here's the first example of a place where I believe that appetite might have been brought under control if his father Manoah had used some authority. If he had said to him, now listen here, I'm not going to do it. But, but look, I mean, Samson acts like a baby. He doesn't even make a reasonable argument. He says he doesn't say I love her. He doesn't say she's she's great. He doesn't say anything about her because he's never even talked to the girl before. He doesn't. He's never met this girl before. He just says, "Get her for me. Get her for me. Get her for me." Listen, one of the greatest parents. One of the greatest things we can teach our children is delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. Again, I'm teaching you what I believe the Bible teaches and what I believe to be right. I'm not telling you that I always live up to this or that I always will. But I'm telling you what I believe to be right. I believe there are times when we have the means to give things to our children and we are wrong to give it to them. I believe there are times when it is an act of Christ-like love to withhold from our own children. I believe there are times when it is profound love to keep something from our kids. See, your parents sacrificed in order uh, for many of you to have what you have, and it's natural for us to want to sacrifice so that our children may have things, but, but I really believe with my whole heart that there are times when we should withhold our hand and say, if you make this decision, you are going to have to live with it. If you make this decision, I will not assist you in it. I believe it with my whole heart. I know of a boy who was going to a private Christian school and, and he got into so much trouble at the school that he was suspended and they didn't know if they were going to let him back in. And he went to his dad and he said, I've got to go to the school board and make an appeal to the school board to get back in school. And his father looked at him and said, I'm not going to help you. He said, I, I've, been, I've been paying all these years for you to go to a private Christian school. I believe that it's God's best for you. I believe that it's God's highest for you to go to this Christian school. But I'm not going to continue to pay for you to misbehave in a Christian school. Now suddenly the tables were turned and the boy said, I want to go to this school. I really want to. And the father said, I have seen absolutely nothing that makes me believe that you, that you want to. And the boy said, I promise you that I do. And his father said to him, he said, listen, you had a job this past summer. You have some money in the bank. If you want to go to this Christian school, then you pay the tuition. And the last quarter of that school year at that Christian school, that boy paid his own tuition. And let me tell you something. This father confided in his pastor. and He, he said there were nights when that father wept. And he cried and he said, oh God, I hope I've done the right thing. Oh God, I hope I've done the right thing. It's a terrible risk. It's a terrible gamble. What if my boy says I'm not going to pay for it? And he goes to a public school and he gets involved with a bad group of kids and falls into sin and goes off into this world. And, and, and you say to yourself, maybe I should have paid for that one more quarter. And that's what Manoah was saying to himself here. If I don't get him this girl, he might run away from home. He might elope with her. He might run off. He might join the Philistines. Oh, oh, I'll just get her for him. Maybe that'll satisfy him. But instead, what did that teach? When Manoah gave Samson what he wanted in spite of God's will, it taught Samson that if you kick up a big enough fuss, then you get whatever you want and you can get it now. If Manoah had taken the reins of leadership as the priest of his home, maybe Samson's life would have turned out differently. Now, I don't care that Samson was an anointed man of God. I don't care that he had all this great strength. I don't care that Samson had been set aside by God since his birth. Uh, on this one incident, Manoah should have said, no, absolutely not. This is not what God has for you. This is not his best for you. I will not get her for you. I will not negotiate. I will not pay the dowry. The answer is no. And he should have, should have held the line and stood fast. By the way, that boy in that Christian school paid his own tuition. And listen to this. The quarter that he paid his own tuition to go to the Christian school, he never got sent to the office one time. You, you know what? When you're paying your tuition, it just isn't all about that fun and party. You know, it was a major turning point in that boy's life. And a little, boy, a little bit later, that boy uh, came to the Lord in a dramatic and powerful way. And I believe that the anvil, that, that first point was his father saying, no, go to public school or pay your own tuition. But I'm not going to give you another dime on this. And, and that father 
I know because of what he said. Went into his room and closed the door and he put, he put on this big tough front in front of the boy. And then he went into his own room and threw himself across the bread, bed and said, God, I don't know if I've done the right thing. But it was saying no that taught the son that delayed gratification and making the decision to do what's right right now is of importance. Let me conclude with this. Mary Beth, if you could come on up. Those are three negative examples. You say, what about a positive example? I have one positive example we're going to close with. Here's a father who had a great plan for his son. Something wonderful that he's supposed to do. A destiny that he's supposed to fulfill and his son knows it. He knows that his son is supposed to be a king. He knows that he's supposed to be the most important man of his generation. He, he knows that. So in order to prepare him, what does he do? He puts him in a tiny little village in the Middle East where he was raised up in poverty for 30 years and he learns to wait on God. For 30 years, he waits for the preparation of the inner man. God shaping and molding, dealing with the inner man so that he grows not only in physical stature, but morally and spiritually and intellectually. He grows in every way until he's brought to the fullness of manhood, knowing his plan for him, knowing that his father could accelerate the plan. His father could put him on the throne at the age of five and he would be the greatest king the world has ever seen. Still, the father waited, allowing him to be raised in poverty, in need, in oppression for 30 years before he ever announced in public, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God raised his son, Jesus, slowly and carefully in private until he brought him out in that one public moment for the fulfillment of his destiny. Listen, dads, I know this. Being a father, not just a father, being a parent in today's world is, a, is the greatest challenge that many of us will ever face. And being a dad in this Today's world is, 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 is maybe the greatest challenge that any American male would face. But I believe this. If we seek to be godly men, raising our children in godly ways, God will give us godly wisdom. That's the promise I have. I, I mean, am I the only parent here that you've been in that situation? You're like, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to handle this. It's in those moments I realize I need the wisdom of the Lord. None of this is going to be easy. And if you've had more than one child, you realize that everything that worked with the first child doesn't work with the second. They're all different. There's no manual. And they'll come up with their own, they'll create their own scenarios that you, that you think, I never saw that coming. It's not going to be easy. Sometimes there's going to be real pain, real pain along the way. But I believe the godly way is the best way in the long run. Would you stand together with me? I want to pray. Heavenly Father.